Late in 2022, after years, if not decades, of gynecological issues, I was diagnosed with adenomyosis. It's a condition where endometrial tissue grows into the muscular wall of the uterus. It can cause pain, heavy bleeding, thickening of the uterine wall, and complications like infertility. For most of my life, I was told the symptoms I experienced with my cycle were normal. Later, I was told it was caused by my fibroids. I've had countless exams and ultrasounds, but the diagnostic process usually stopped there, and it was followed up with an offer of birth control pills or an IUD placement. Finally, I was connected to an OBGYN who researches fibroids specifically in black women. She took one additional diagnostic step and ordered an MRI, and that led to my diagnosis. I'll be out for most of the month starting next week for surgery, but frankly, I'm lucky. I found the right doctor, and I have health insurance that will mostly cover my care. But unfortunately, my story isn't unusual. I went to doctors repeatedly saying I felt tired and I felt that my heart was palpitating. I couldn't imagine ever having felt this tired in my life. I was repeatedly told that it was simply anxiety, that I was young and healthy, and that I should focus on my mental health. Well, I'm definitely a mental health advocate, but I'm also now in line for a kidney transplant at UNC Chapel Hill. I was suffering from a lot of pain having a hard time breathing, could not walk, went to my emergency room, was seen by the head of the ER department, and he patted me on the knee and told me there was absolutely nothing wrong with me, and it was all in my head. The next day, I was admitted to the hospital. I was there for seven days. I was not getting a menstrual cycle regularly. I had these symptoms, and every time I would go see a doctor, they would tell me, I am lucky to not get a period, and they said it's, it's fine. Well, it finally, after my fifth doctor that I went to, finally diagnosed me with PCOS. But yes, I totally understand how sometimes women just get ignored from doctors, and they feel like we're just exaggerating our symptoms, or we don't know what we're talking about. From chronic pain to ER visits, women's medical concerns are dismissed at a higher rate than men. Gender bias affects the way people are diagnosed and receive care. And in the intersection of race, it can be even worse. But why does this happen and what can be done about it? We'll answer all those questions and more after the break. And of course, we hear from you. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining me is Anishé Hossein, the author of The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. Anishé, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, a practicing OBGYN. She's also the CEO of Power to Decide, a nonprofit that campaigns to prevent unplanned pregnancy. Dr. Reagan, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Reagan, let's just start with that big picture question. Why does the medical profession still tr- struggle to take women, and especially women of color, seriously? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that I'm sorry that you're experiencing these health issues, and thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's really important to bring these stories to light and to talk about this issue. The ways that gender and racial bias show up in medicine and lead to inferior care for people of color and communities is such an important topic to me as a Black woman who's also a physician and specifically an obstetrician gynecologist. 
this topic presents such a challenge to me personally because I, I'm very passionate about my chosen profession and its ability to transform lives and allow people to be the best versions of themselves. However, I also know that providers and medical systems cannot live up to that promise of healthier people and communities until we actively address and discuss the historic ways that gender bias and racism have tainted the field of medicine and have led to inequitable care. We'll be focusing in on women's health a lot during this conversation, Dr. Reagan, but how does gender or someone's perceived gender affect the type of care they may receive? Well, really, this goes back to like the founding of modern medicine in the United States. Um, women were often labeled as the lesser gender by medical professionals and their pain and illness shrugged off and attributed to their emotions or psychological state. In the 19th century, ideas about the weakness of the female nervous system were pervasive and many women were diagnosed with quote-unquote hysteria by doctors who were unwilling or unable to treat their actual concerns. And these gender myths are ingrained in all of us and manifest as gender bias and negatively impact the care and treatment and diagnosis of of people who identify as women. Um, It's actually interesting to note that the Greek word hystera uh, means womb, actually, um, which uh, is how the term hysteria um, came about and is still used today as the term hysterectomy, which is removal of the uterus. And so that just goes to show that sort of these historical perspectives of labeling women as hysterical or weak um, or feeble have sort of pervaded and continue today. We'll get more into the history of American gynecological medicine a little later in the show. But Anusha, let's talk about the scope of this issue. One study from the Journal of Women's Health found that middle-aged women with chest pain were twice as likely to be diagnosed with a mental illness than their male counterparts. And according to a survey from the National Pain Report, more than 90% of women with chronic pain feel the healthcare system discriminates against female patients. What else do we know about how often women's health concerns are dismissed or ignored? Um, well, you know what? That is such an important question. And I'm so glad um, that our that our other guests brought up the the history and the issue of hysteria because the legacy of hysteria still very much impacts women's health to this day and really determines if you're going to, you know, when and if a woman is even going to be able to get a diagnosis. What I found in my research um, is not only that every woman has a story, Every woman has a story of being dismissed, uh, medically dismissed, dismissed almost to the point um, of death, not being believed about their their medical systems and uh, uh, symptoms. And what I found that in addition to a pain gap, there's a serious credibility gap when it comes to women's health. Women are simply not believed about their bodies, period. You know, we're not believed when we say we've been raped. We're not believed when we say we've been harassed. We're not believed when we say we're in pain or we think something's wrong. So in addition to a pain gap, there's a serious credibility gap where we simply do not believe women. Well, Dr. Reagan, we we talked a bit about the intersection of gender and race, but what about things like age and income? How can that affect care? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that there are gender biases, we know that there are racial biases, and we know that these things can really impact the outcomes that people um, uh, experience. Um, And there are other biases, as you pointed out, including biases around gender identity, around income and inequality as well. Um, And so if we layer on all of these biases and equitable treatment, it means that people with lower incomes, women of color, specifically black women, 
um, are oftentimes, you know, experiencing the very worst outcomes. And that has manifested in very high rates, for example, of maternal mortality for black women in this country that are much higher than any other developed nation around the world. Anusha, there's also something really um, just foundational in this conversation that we have to address, and that's a gap in medical knowledge in terms of research and clinical trials. Women have historically been left out. Why? Uh, You know, this is one of my biggest, biggest, I don't want to say triggers, but it just infuriates me so much because when we speak about women's health, it's not like AIDS or cancer. You know, we have a lot of the tools and the knowledge we need, um, but what we do with women's health is we just do not treat it as uh, a priority. And there's such, there's this huge knowledge gap. There's such a serious lack of research done in women's health. We actually know very little. I mean, the standard for health in America really even to this day, is um, a middle-aged white man. And when you bring the issue of race into it, I mean, the American medical system is inherently uh, racist. And these are things we are just finally starting to talk about. I want to quickly go back to um, America's maternal mortality numbers because that is where really we see a lot of the racial gaps and disparities show up. I mean, we know that black women and women of color are more likely to die than their their white counterparts giving birth in America. But that number is 243%. Black women are 243% more likely to die giving birth in America. And pre-pandemic, we used to say really racist explanations. Uh, we used to give really racist explanations um, for these for these disparities. But now we know that even a college-educated Black woman is five times more likely to die giving birth in America than a white woman with a high school degree. So we know now, we have studies that back the fact that it's racism, not race, that is um, responsible for these gaps. Well, we heard from so many of you who shared your stories with us. Let's listen to some of those voicemails. I was experiencing severe migraines, and I kept being given prescription meds for psychiatric issues. And eventually it turned out to be after two years of trying to fight with them that this had to be something with nutrition or my body. But no, they kept giving me prescription drugs. turned out to be a birth control pill that was taken off the market in Europe. I went to a doctor with this chronic pain and nobody could figure it out. And he decided that he was going to just diagnose me with fibromyalgia. And he gave me this medication and I felt really strange after taking it for a little while. And I researched it and he had prescribed me antidepressants and I called him on it. And I said, you know, why did you prescribe me antidepressants? And he denied it. Diane tweets, I came very close to dying because of my Crohn's disease was dismissed as nerves. And Tick tweets, I also have had adenomyosis. I was not diagnosed until I was 50. I want to bring another voice into the conversation now. Deirdre Cooper Owens is a professor in the history of medicine at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She's also the author of Medical Bondage. Deirdre, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So in your book, you trace back the roots of American gynecology to slavery. Tell us about those beginnings. Yeah, so the beginnings are really not um, about one person. 
um, I often tell people to, to not necessarily forget about the individuals, but to think about this as a structure. And so medicine becomes part and parcel of slavery from the slave ships. What keeps the engine of American slavery going since the colonial period was a Latin term, partus sequitur ventrum. And what that means is the condition of the child is inherited from the mother's status. And so British colonial America does something that's quite unique in the Western world. Instead of patriarchal lines being the inherited ones, major well, I'm, not, I'm going to say matrifocal lines because enslaved women don't have power. Um, so they realize these women are getting impregnated by presidents. <laughs> They're getting <laughs> impregnated by slave owners, by white men, by black men, by indigenous men. And so those children can't be in, uh, closely tied to the fathers who have power, who have freedom, who have status for the most part. And so this colonial rule comes into being. And it literally helps to propel slavery. And so one of the main concerns from the earliest physicians and slave owners are how do we ensure Black women continue to have babies that live? In your research, you talk about this concept of what you call medical superbodies. And this is a, a term you coined. Explain what that is. Medical superbodies is really about the, the kind of sameness and difference that had been mapped onto Black women's bodies. And so by that, I mean, a Black woman can be thought uh, superior when it comes to pain management. Oh, they reproduce easily like bunnies, like, rat, you know, like dogs. And so they don't experience pain uh, in childbirth, for instance. But at the same time, these women are suffering because the labor of slavery is so intense and severe that it's racking their bodies, that the maternal mortality rate, the infant mortality rate for Black women and their children during the era of slavery continue to outpace uh, white women and their children. And so it's like both sides of a coin. So when we, when we talk about the early practice of gynecology in America just explain a little bit more about some of those roots, how Black women were, were treated and experimented on. Uh, in the first chapter of my book, I often call it the Roots chapter, much like the TV miniseries, because it traces the intellectual genealogy. And so it really begins in the late 18th century, where you have these men starting to enter what was then called midwifery. And so male midwives very clearly know that they are going to be outnumbered. And so all of a sudden it becomes obstetrics and gynecology. And in the U.S., who is the easiest group to access? Obviously those human beings who are considered legal chat, uh, chattel or property. And so you have easy access to a vulnerable group. You can go to their owners and say, hey, I can, I can cure Betsy. I can ensure that they're not going to suffer from these pregnancy-related con uh, complications. And so you had literally the removal of uh, ovarian tumors practiced on enslaved women, C-sections, uh, the uh, suturing or the, the stitching together of obstetrical fistula, which was caused from complicated childbirths that created tearing. All of these kinds of conditions were quite common, but the group that was targeted were enslaved women because they were the most easily accessible. And also the cost-benefit analysis for everyone involved in making sure that slavery continued to keep the U.S. Uh, a very rich nation meant that everyone wanted black women's bodies to be repaired 
so that they can continue to produce other slaves. So that's those are really the roots. And through that process of surgery and experimentation, what kind of care was extended to these women? You know, that that is, I wish the viewers could see me because care, I'm going to put in air quotations. Yeah. Um, medicine is supposed to be about caring, right? Um, it's supposed to be an art form where healing and love are, are at the foundation. The care I show in my book comes from the enslaved community. Those are the ones who were forced to have to um, assist these doctors when it came to cleanup, to feeding the patients, showing love to the patients. Um, Most people focus on a man named James Marion Sims, who's known as the father of American gynecology. And what I tried to do in my book was to take the focus off Sims and to really think about his patients who also become his surgical nurses and assistants. And so I can imagine, of course, they don't leave written records for us. Slavery outlawed literacy and education uh, for, for the enslaved. But what I imagine is that as those women were having to tend to each other while also undergoing sur- surgeries, they're giving each other water. They're you know, wiping brows. They're hugging each other when, when they're in pain and crying. And so the care comes from the, the members of the enslaved community. Well, and as you're describing that, it, it, we should be reminded that these are not surgeries or experimentation that was done under anesthesia as yeah. we understand it now and with this belief that Black women didn't experience pain in the same way they were treated as though they wouldn't experience pain. And this is the thing, though, that I often call the racial cognitive dissonance, right? Where people can write a thing. So you, a doctor can say in the 18th and 19th century, these people do not experience pain. And yet they recognize they're dealing with human beings because they're experimenting on Black women to ultimately cure all women. And so once again, here's a, a hypocrisy that comes up. But beyond that, when you read the doctor's notes, if Black women didn't experience pain, why are you continuing the common practice of restraining patients, right? So that's very common in the 19th century. Most surgeries did not involve anesthesia until very late uh, in the 19th century. You know, after slavery, anesthesia becomes uh, pretty common. However, you restrain patients because you know if someone's awake, if they're conscious and they see a knife coming their way, they're going to flinch, they're going to try and run away. Well, if Black people, Black women don't experience pain, why did you need to restrain them? Because ultimately, no, they know it's a fiction, right? They know that a Black woman's cervix looks like a white woman's cervix. They understand that. But the embrace and the power of an anti-Black message that these people aren't quite human, that they're pathological, that they're abnormal, outweighs even what the doctors are are performing and seeing, you know, and even writing this kind of contradictory message. Yes, she didn't scream, but she fought violently. Okay, she didn't scream, but you noted in your notes she's fighting violently, right, against the restraints. And so those are the kinds of racial cognitive dissonances I often tell my students to read between the lines, right, when, when we're talking about these populations of people who don't leave written records but the actions come through, and you know that these are human beings we're talking about. Deirdre, before we let you go, I, I, I could talk with you about this for, for hours, but you talk about these roots of specifically American gynecological medicine, and, and we're talking about the disparity in care that women in general receive. And, and do you see a connection there? And if so, I'd love to hear you talk about it. 
The connection is, unfortunately, that Black women continue to be othered. Um, I heard one of the, the other guests talk about um, women are not listened to typically by medical professionals, and the stats show that. But Black women in particular in this country are really not listened to. And so when Black women complain of pain, they're, they are told they're being histrionic or that they're seeking drugs. This kind of cuts across gender lines, you know, for, for just Black patients. Uh, black women's bodies um, are continued to be uh, used by, by doctors and surgeons disproportionately for C-sections. Those roots come directly from slavery. In fact, the state of Louisiana from the 1830s, when uh, C-sections were first successfully performed by a French-born uh, physician who re relocated to the U.S., Dr. Francis, uh, Francois Prevot, Prevot, excuse me. he performs two successful cesarean sections on enslaved women. He had actually done that work in Haiti just a few years, uh, few years before on enslaved women. He does this in the United States. Guess what? Until very recently, when Mississippi knocked it down to number two, for well over 100 years, Louisiana was the state that had the highest number of recorded C-sections for black women. The stats are almost at 40%. Mississippi recently knocked it down to number two. So when people talk about a continuous line, I'm like, just look at C-sections, right? Um, those are the kinds of things that unfortunately, uh, for me, are glaring legacies of the medical racism started in the antebellum era. That's Deirdre Cooper-Owens. She's a professor in the history of medicine at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She's also the author of Medical Bondage. Deirdre, thanks for speaking with us. You're welcome. We're talking about women being underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed by their medical providers. More from you and our guests in a moment. Now let's turn back to our discussion. We're talking about how women are often misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Anusha, I, I want to hear your story. You had an almost fatal experience during childbirth. What happened? Um, yes, you know, um, I'm so glad that you asked me that because the power of women's stories and the importance of women's stories is more important uh, than ever. That's where we can see a lot of patterns emerge, especially since we're dealing with this knowledge gap. You know, I was giving birth with my with my first daughter in one of the best hospitals in Washington. And even though I was working on global health legislation and working in women's health, I had no idea that America had one of the highest maternal mortality numbers in the world, especially amongst rich nations. And I didn't think it was possible to die in childbirth, to die giving birth in the richest democracy in the world. Even when I was dying giving birth, uh, I kept thinking to myself, but I'm in Washington. I'm not going to die um, die in childbirth. And, you know, I was in labor for 33 hours. I kept telling them that I could feel everything. They kept telling me that I was at the legal limit for my um, epidural. It turns out I wasn't even hooked up. Um, it had slipped out and I wasn't getting, being administered any pain, pain relief. And by the time they had discovered it, you know, I had 103 fever. I was shaking uncontrollably. I had to have this emergency C-section. And when I was wheeled into the OR, the doctor who I had never seen before didn't believe that I was in pain. He wanted me to get off the stretcher and get onto the operating table on my own. This was after 33 hours of everything that I had been through. I have a baby wow. stuck between my legs. And this man 
didn't believe that I was in pain. And in so many ways, I'm still processing the trauma of my experience. So when I hear other women's stories, it makes us realize that we're, we're not alone. And we did not imagine it. It was not all in our heads. And we were not being hysterical. It's a systemic issue. Tracy emails, I'm a privileged white woman, and when I was 17, I chose to have an abortion. At the clinic, I was terrified and asked the doctor if it was going to hurt. His reply, yes, and you deserve it. In the nearly four decades since, I've had endless gynecological problems and anxiety about physicians. The care gap is emotional. This is Tom in North Carolina. This is a problem in my own family. My mother died a few months ago after being repeatedly misdiagnosed for what turned out to be multiple heart attacks, strokes, and some kind of gastrointestinal cancer. We almost lost my sister months before my mom. She had blood cancer but was repeatedly being misdiagnosed with panic attacks. Tom, thank you for sharing your story with us. We also heard from Essie, who says, I, like you, was misdiagnosed with the same uterine condition, adenomyosis, and my experience was almost identical. The two exceptions are that I am white, and because of the delay, the condition had progressed to the point that I had to have a total hysterectomy. But Anusha, as I also said earlier, I'm lucky. Um, My condition is non-life-threatening, and I eventually got a diagnosis. But for Tom's mother, this this was a fatal problem. What are the health complications that can arise when we're undiagnosed or or misdiagnosed? There are so many health complications that can arise. And you know, this is where we come back to the knowledge gap in in women's health. We need to include more women in clinical studies. We need to include more women of color and people of color in clinical studies. You know, it wasn't until the 1990s that the National Institute of Health and the FDA even had a mandate to include women in its clinical trials. And we see such, I mean, we're we're lacking essential life-saving information. I mean, even with something like chronic pain, conditions like chronic pain or depression, which affect uh, women more, um, we still uh, don't include enough women in those clinical trials and studies. In fact, even the mice that we use for chronic pain studies are still uh, majority male. There's still a, there's a mice patriarchy that we, that we are also up against. But something is really also interesting, especially when it comes to heart diseases, how we view these diseases, these conditions as male. When we think about heart disease, you know, we, it's considered a very male disease, right? We think about a man, a white man hunching over having a heart attack. But women have really different um, symptoms when we're experiencing heart attacks. You know, we have pain in our necks. We have shooting pain in our arms. We feel nauseous. So these are really different symptoms. And heart disease is a leading cause of death for women in America, especially for black women. So we have to get as much information. There's, there's no way that we can come to a solution or a cure if we're not even believing women uh, when they say that something's wrong with them. I want to share as many of your stories this hour as we can. Ellen emails, I am an ovarian cancer patient, and women in our community face this problem all the time. Diagnosis is often delayed because women aren't believed. Add in the fact that there's no screening tool for ovarian cancer, the lack of funding for research, and the general taboo we have talking about a woman's, a woman's reproductive system, and it's no wonder why ovarian cancer has not seen an improvement in survival rates in over 30 years. I mean, Dr. Reagan... Part of the reason I wanted to be transparent with our audience about my condition, um, about my hysterectomy, is because we we don't talk about this. And 
when it all happens behind closed doors, um, I think it's <laughs> it's hard for us to really elevate this conversation to the level that it needs to be elevated to. And it's it's one of the few times when I'm using this platform for that for that purpose. How how do we collectively say to the medical community this has to change? Something has to shift. What what pressure can we bring to bear? It's so important. And again, I applaud your bravery and vulnerability for talking about this. But it's so true, particularly around healthcare for people capable of reproduction. It is often shrouded in stigma um, when the reality is, you know, that people will experience all types of things throughout their life course for people who have a uterus, right? Like there might be a time where someone needs birth control. There might be a time where someone has a miscarriage. There might be a time where someone has an abortion. And there might be a time where someone continues their pregnancy and has complications. And we should be able to receive compassionate, um, empathetic care for all of those circumstances. And it shouldn't be shrouded in stigma. And that's something that we're working to do diligently at Power to Decide is sort of addressing stigma and promoting the concept of reproductive well-being. Um, but, but I did want to just for a minute, if I may, just double click on this concern around the lack of funding for women's mm-hmm. health and research. It's really frustrating that uh, so many basic and elemental questions about the healthcare for people capable of, capable of reproduction that are still really unanswered. Like what causes endometriosis or adenomyosis or fibroids even, a very common condition that more commonly impacts black women. We don't know the answers to these things and how to, why they occur and therefore how to prevent them. Another ubiquitous example is how best to monitor babies when someone's in labor. We use a fetal monitoring system um, throughout the country that is not evidence-based and has not proven to improve outcomes for babies and has actually caused worse outcomes for people having babies as it has driven up the C-section rate. Women's health has been historically underfunded both in terms of research dollars and venture capital investments. For example, only about 5% of capital invested in digital health startups in the last few years went to companies focused on women's health issues, right? Um, And as Anushé pointed out, the NIH um, just created the Office of Women's Health and Research in the 1990s. So we have decades and decades behind in terms of research around conditions that impact women. Mm -hmm. There was a 2021 study that looked at funding patterns from the NIH that concluded that uh, the NIH disproportionately, the National Institute of Health, disproportionately funds diseases that primarily affect men, while diseases that primarily affect women are often underfunded. Um, So it's a systemic issue, and we're not not going to get to better solutions and better treatment offerings and better diagnostic tools until we invest more in funding for women's health issues. Anusha, I want to make sure we touch on the issue of pain, because the title of your book is The Pain Gap. We know pain is difficult to measure, and it can vary widely from person to person. But what have you learned in your research about why pain is acknowledged and addressed differently for women than men? It is so fascinating, the issue of women's pain. Something that I found in uh, during the course of my research and while I was writing this book is that it's so interesting because we expect women historically, biblically, <laughs> to have a really high threshold for pain. We expect them to have it. But then we don't believe them when they say that they're in excruciating pain. 
And this is where the credibility gap comes in. And But we're also seeing that not only is men's pain viewed um, more seriously and believed, but they often receive the highest uh, and most effective and most powerful um, medicines and treatments to resolve their pain. You know, we've seen that women wait on average 29% longer in the ER to even be viewed, uh, to even be seen for their pain. But something that's really important that we have to you know, which I think is, you know, I, I really believe that we are at a turning point for women's health in America. And I feel like with all the doom and gloom with the pandemic, I feel, I really believe that COVID is giving us a huge opportunity to reimagine healthcare and especially reimagine healthcare for women. Um, we have to stop viewing women's health as a women's issue only. You know, we all need to invest in women's health. And, and as far as uh, lack of research is concerned, I want to quickly point out that during the early trials for the COVID vaccine, you know, arguably, arguably the most anticipated vaccine of our lifetime, women were left out. It happened in real time. It was so infuriating, even though we knew that, the, that COVID was more dangerous uh, for pregnant women and more deadly, even though we knew that 70% of the world's uh, healthcare force and in America are, are made out of largely composed of women. We still did not prioritize women's lives or women's health. We got this tweet from one of you who says, I have definitely experienced this from men. Only male providers have dismissed my concerns. And... And the spirit of transparency over over my decades of going to uh, OBGYNs, I've only had one male physician, one male OBGYN. So is there something, is it just about choosing uh, a, a doctor who is a woman or is there something more fundamental that needs to shift, Dr. Reagan? I mean, there is some research to show that these gender biases and racial biases do differ based on the gender and the race and ethnicity of the provider. Um, and so in, in sort of pivoting to thinking about solutions to all of these issues, right, one of them is to diversify the provider workforce. Um, and that is not an overnight solution. That's going to take investments at all levels from, you know, nursing schools to medical schools, et cetera, to invest in a much more diverse workforce. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, women can hold biases too, and people of color can also be racist, right? And so it can hold um, racial biases. And so in addition to diversifying the workforce, we have to systemically institute things um, to make sure that people experience equitable outcomes, right? So from the systems level, we have to have equity-informed quality insurance programs, measure outcomes by gender, race, and ethnicity, hold people accountable for equitable outcomes, pay according to equitable outcomes for the whole systems. At the provider level, we have to reemphasize the humanity of medicine. We have to be lifting up this history and so people can understand in the provider-patient interaction why people are concerned or may have mistrust of the medical system and how our biases may show up. And we have to listen to people and trust them and provide person-centered care. Um, and another thing from the individual level is just, you know, reminding your listeners that, you know, if they're concerned, you know, they can always get a second opinion or go to another provider. Having an advocate with you if you have to go to the emergency room or to a, a provider's visit can be really helpful if you're able to bring a friend or a loved one with you to help ask your questions and make sure that you're being fully listened to. Interacting with the healthcare system can be very intimidating, so it can be helpful to have someone with you. But this cannot be left to 
individuals to fix. It has to be addressed at the systemic level. Mm. And yes, the systemic level is is where the the big big fixes need to occur. But Anushi, I know when you were going through your birth experience, you write about how you were so used to speaking up, but you couldn't find your voice at that time. And this is something we've heard repeated from so many of the messages we received. I mean, on the other side of that experience, any any advice for how to be the best advocates for ourselves? You know, I'm always so angry at myself when I look back at my story. I I think about how polite I was being to that doctor who didn't even see me as a full human being. You know, he was so dismissive of me, so dismissive of of, um, my suffering. And I think that, I think one of the most important things is that you're so vulnerable at that point, you know, and women really try to be perfect. I was trying to be like this perfect patient. You know, we try to be the perfect student. We try to be the perfect mom uh, because that's what society demands of us. And whenever I think back, I'm like, this man didn't even see my humanity, but I was trying to be so, you know, like such a good patient. You're trying to, mm. <laughs> trying to almost, almost seek his approval. So I think it's really important that we remember our humanity. And something I say at the end of my book is, is that, yes, I like that, the, you know, it's really important that we take somebody with us to advocate with us. But we also have to remember that we have to view our health as a team effort. And we have to remember that the expert in that healthcare team is not the doctor. It's us. And, you know, for so long, I never knew that, yeah, you can change your provider. I mean, when I was growing up in Bangladesh, I didn't even know that you could question a white man. And now I'm like, yes, question your doctor, question your provider. If you feel like you are not being heard or not believed, switch providers. I don't know for so long why I didn't know that. Mm. (laughs) There's so many things that we don't know. Keep informing and educating yourself. Um, The onus should not be on women. But until we get a systemic change or a cultural change where we believe women, believe women, believe us, believe women of color, um, unfortunately, there is a lot of things that women, that we have to do Mm. to make sure that we are not dismissed to death. I want to quickly get to this statement we got from Mary Rojak. She's a medical sociologist and co-founder and current chair of the Sex and Gender Health Collaborative at the American Medical Women's Association. She wrote, a major aim of the field of sex and gender health is to address the historic deficit of attention to women's health needs in research, education, and clinical practice. The NIH has recognized that this content needs to be integrated into medical education. In 2022, it initiated a grant program to fund the development of courses in curricula in sex and gender health. Dr. Reagan, what needs to happen at the educational level? So much needs to be happened at the educational level. Um, I mean, you know, so much of what I've learned about um, inequities, about the history of gynecology, about the ways that racism shows up in the healthcare system, that was all, you know, learned um, outside of my formal medical training. Um, I think there has been significant progress in the decades since I went to medical school, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. These needs to be, you know, a critical part, an intrinsic part of every medical education um, for for anyone who, before they touch a patient, to fully understand the history of the issues around gender bias and racism in medicine. That's Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She's a practicing OBGYN and the CEO of Power to Decide. Also with us today, Anushe Hossein, the author of The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. 
Thanks to you both for your time today. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing your stories. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.